0: Welcome to The View from the Front. My name is Stan, and this is the September 28th edition. If you are new to the show, let me say as background that I'm a proud moderate. Quite frankly, those on the far right, those on the far left, both sides really get on my nerves, because if you kept up with politics very long, you probably know that those who are the loudest and the most stern, they often keep progress from happening. Politics, government... That is about compromise. That is about taking steps in the direction and not always getting what you want. It's not a real popular thing to say in America these days, but that's the reality. A little about myself besides being a proud moderate, I covered the news for more than 10 years as a journalist, even owning a small local newspaper for nine years in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Prior to that, and prior to getting a journalism degree, spent four years in the Marines carrying a rifle, spent that time in the infantry. Every week I do three things. I cover hot spots and defense news happening around the world that could affect the United States. I definitely bring up our troops in any major deployments or situations that they are involved in. I also try to unite our country. And finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I really want to help encourage you, help make a positive impact if I can at all, So that's what we do here. Hope you really enjoy the show. So before we get into the news today, I thought I'd share two pieces of reader mail. Uh, The first one, I didn't get or receive permission back to name the person. I don't think they'd mind me saying their name, but just because I didn't get confirmation, I'm not going to mention their name, and I'll keep the situation a little more vague than what was described in the email. But this uh, subscriber sent a emailed to me and said that, uh, you know, I had mentioned in the last podcast about just trying to juggle the responsibilities of chasing your dream, but also trying to be a good step-parent. And uh, so this individual reaches out to me by email and shares that, how how he is still very close to his uh, stepchildren, And in fact, the um, I don't want to go into too much details, but essentially is divorced from the 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 mother of of these children, but still to this day, very close to them and how much joy they bring to his life. And so, I thought it was worth sharing, just because it helps keep in perspective for all of us that these family, this family time, these days of family, they are limited for all of us. And if you haven't figured it out, once your kid gets to high school or college, you know there comes a point where. You're not cool anymore, and they don't want to spend a lot of time with you. But I really appreciated that email from this subscriber. Again, I don't want to mention the name, but uh, thanks so much for reaching out. I uh, really appreciated the words. They meant a lot. I also wanted to share a comment that was left by Eric Karras. He's a 22-year Army veteran, lieutenant colonel. I've mentioned him in the past. Done three tours in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. Deployed a lot. But 22-year Army veteran lieutenant colonel, served in the Army and intelligence. He left a comment that was just so well said that I definitely wanted to share it. Karis describes what's happening in this Ukrainian counteroffensive with a really good analogy, and this is what he says. The Russian defensive strategy is like testing the tensile strength of steel called a stress-strain curve. The steel will maintain form until yield strength or quote yield strength. Then it will bend and deform under strain until sudden failure called fracture. So again, Keras is saying it go it starts to begin to bend under this strain until it hits yield strength yield. Apparently, can't hardly say the word, but yield strength. And then it will bend and deform under strain until sudden failure called fracture. He says, is that what we are seeing? Maybe. Time will be a factor for both sides, which brings me to the following point. And then he says, I am always annoyed when I hear certain congressmen say we cannot send more aid to Ukraine. I believe I understand their motivations, and I don't think it has anything to do with fiscal prudence. For comparison, the U.S. has appropriated $113 billion to Ukraine for aid. For perspective, according to Simply Wall Street, the U.S. consumer spent $178 billion on soft drinks this year. I know I am preaching here, but we need to support the Ukrainian army and get them everything they need now. Putin's premise for invasion was to establish the old Russian Empire and annex ethnic Russian areas. If Putin is successful in Ukraine, what will stop him in the Baltic states from establishing a land bridge to Kaliningrad? And he says an additional $113 billion to Ukraine is a bargain compared to the alternative. Now, just as a quick geography reminder, Kaliningrad is actually Russian territory that's partially behind NATO lines. And so, Obviously, in a perfect world, Russia would love to have a land bridge to Kaliningrad because it's currently behind, as I said, NATO lines. It's behind Latvia and Lithuania and also part of Belarus. So in a perfect world, Kaliningrad, adjacent to Poland, behind Latvia, Lithuania, and Belarus... Obviously if Putin could pull off something in Ukraine, he would be very tempted to test his luck elsewhere. Although the last drubbing the last year's worth of drubbing has probably reined him in on some of his objectives on what he thought he could do and honestly what Western intelligence thought he could do. Everyone thought he could overrun the capital city of Kiev in Ukraine in three days. I don't think there was hardly any analyst who doubted that. But Ukraine has shown itself just to be a very, just incredibly uh, tough group of people who really value their independence, and they've pulled together and they've done amazing things. One other thing, I'd seen this on Twitter, so I wanted to make sure I looked it up to confirm it, but when we're talking about how much we have supplied to Ukraine to this point, again, it's $113 billion. but what is shocking just absolutely shocking is that in Afghanistan over 20 years we spent 2 trillion dollars and that was with US troops there suffering some casualties that's 300 million dollars per day every day for two decades again now this is a, I'll put the link in the substack notes this is from Forbes 2 trillion dollars you'll see that cost quoted everywhere that's the war in Afghanistan. We were there 20 years since September 11, 2001. 20 years, $2 trillion, That's $300 million per day, every day, for two decades. And again, most people rarely said a word about it. In fact, most of the public completely forgot about the war for 20 years until suddenly we pulled out. And then, obviously, a lot of folks were like, hey, why are we pulling out, or this is horrible, and, you know, Again, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but $300 million a day is what we spent in Afghanistan. I hate that we're not still spending some there and, and still helping support that very young government, but it is what it is, and there's no point bringing up the past. I always get very emotional and angry when we do that. But just to put it in perspective, we are spending pennies in Ukraine and literally using no U.S. You know you know u s soldiers at all, and we're giving them older u s material, most of which would be disposed of anyway. So it is truly a bargain to be beyond knee capping one of America's greatest strategic foes, which is obviously China and Russia. Russia is a shadow of what it was a year ago, and they still haven't figured out how to get out of this unbelievable quagmire that they're losing. So I really appreciate the comment from Eric Karras, and again guys, anytime you guys want to reach out, I always answer. I like hearing from you guys. Alright, so now let's get to the news. I wanted to start with an update on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. We haven't really gotten into the weeds much the past couple of weeks because there hasn't been significant gains, but I feel like in the past week there's been enough happens that we need to do just a quick little update. Now, I'm beginning with this counteroffensive news because I'm assuming you guys have already heard that the U.S. government and the Biden administration approved the ATACMS. I did send out an email update for that. So again, if you're not on the email list, it's free to be on there. And I do important updates in between podcasts that break. So that happened on Friday. If you remember in last week's podcast, I mentioned that maybe the Biden administration was pulling kind of a juke move and... Turns out that's pretty much what they did. They juked out the media, and after initially leaking that they were not going to approve ATACOMS, they did. So hopefully that was partly to surprise the Russians. Maybe it was partly to get additional media attention after some frustration. Or maybe there's a small chance that the military knew they were not going to approve it, and high-ranking military officers believing that they needed to be sent, leaked out, that it wasn't going to be approved, and maybe that added some pressure to the Biden administration, and so they decided to make the move. Regardless of which of those three options it was, they were approved, and I put that in a newsletter. So I'm assuming you already know that. We've talked about ATACMs a lot in the last few weeks and the additional range that they provide, what they do for the Ukrainian army. So I'm not going to go back into that. If you have no idea what we're talking about, check out last week's Uh, special edition newsletter that I put out, or you can go listen to a podcast from two weeks ago, and I go into great detail about it. Moving away from that to what really matters is the counteroffensive. And in that newsletter, I talked about how the Institute for the Study of War confirmed that Ukraine has broken through that much-feared Russian anti-tank ditch and those dragon's dragon's teeth obstacles near Verbov, So I mentioned that in the newsletter, and since then, Ukraine has continued to advance further and further. And the ISW talked about, the Institute for the Study of War, that the ability to bring those armored vehicles through the most formidable Russian defenses should allow Ukraine to continue to advance at at a faster pace. So we went into some detail on that in the newsletter. So I won't go too, too much into that, but the short of it is... They've made even more ground since then, and they're mainly advancing in two different areas, which are hundreds of miles apart. The first part is in the southern part of Ukraine, in the Zaporizhia area. That's the area where Ukraine is attempting to cut the land bridge. They are making serious progress there, but also in the north, in Bakhmut, where there's been so much fighting for, gosh, I guess it's been six or nine months or more, Russia did... Score a, an almost hollow victory by taking that decimated city after losing tens of thousands of forces, including Wagner really, you know, bleeding itself out trying to take the place. And then obviously, everything happens with Prigozhin. They pull the troops back. He makes his little coup attempt. That all falls apart after he blinks. He's no longer with us. And as, as in the weeks as all of that has been happening, We've kind of mentioned it, but Ukraine has continued to encircle these troops inside Bakhmut. If you recall, in the earlier part of the year when Russia first took it, I did a, a rather long section in one of the podcast episodes asking if Bakhmut might be the Stalingrad for Russia. And what I meant by that was, during World War II, Hitler and Germany were obviously trying to take Russia. And there was a major city, Stalingrad, was one of the most important cities that Germany wanted to take, other than Moscow. And the German forces got down to Stalingrad, and there was this, it was literally the largest land battle in World War II. Enormous amounts of casualties. And Germany finally takes the city of Stalingrad, or at least most of it. And at about the time they take it, and they have poured in almost a million troops into taking this city, Russia does a double flanking attack, and they send troops to the north and the south of the city, completely encircle Stalingrad, and they trap several German armies inside Stalingrad. And the craziest part of the entire thing is that Germany easily had enough combat power to turn around and fight through this encirclement, like easily, they could have done this. But what happened was, Hitler, being a crazy dictator who does, who does not believe in defeat and does not believe in things such as facts, orders the army to stay there. And he thought they could break through from Germany's side and also use air power. So he totally ignored the advice of his generals, Orders his army to stay in Stalingrad and they end up staying there for weeks and weeks and months and months and they start starving and running out of ammunition and almost a. They have unbelievable casualties, but almost a hundred thousand of them end up having to surrender after they're out of ammunition and they're out of food. Sounds very similar to Bakhmut, does it not? You've got Putin who was just absolutely determined to take the city of almost no tactical value. And initially, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, was determined to hold it. So both sides started pouring in troops, and there was obviously heavy fighting. And then Zelensky eventually relents to pressure, mostly from the West, from NATO and the U.S., all of whom were saying, why are you losing troops in this grinding city battle, which is always very heavy on casualties, just pull back, let let the Russians take it, Zelensky finally allows the troops to re- withdraw. And I said back then, could this be, could the Battle of Bakhmut be the Battle of Stalingrad for Russia? Except this time it's not the Germans who are going to lose big, it's the Russians. Because I said back then, I wonder if Ukraine will do a double flanking attack and encircle the city. Now, unfortunately, Ukraine didn't have the combat power to do that, but in the time since. Russia has taken the city, and since Wagner, the private military contractor company, has left, around Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces have been encircling. And if you look at the map that I've put in the substack notes, you will see that Bakhmut is increasingly, almost completely, encircled. So it's getting there. Not a good place to be if you're a Russian soldier inside Bakhmut because Ukraine now has high ground in the important strategic area around Bakhmut. So it's going to be harder and harder for Russia to supply the city. I don't know how many Russian troops are in there. I don't know how close this encirclement is to happening. It's not the kind of maneuver warfare that we in the West like. There's just it's an entirely different war with drones, with all the advantages that drones have in Aerial surveillance and calling in artillery fire. So it's not the kind of thing we'd like, but inch by inch, yard by yard, the Ukrainians have really come close to encircling Bakhmut and controlling the highways in. So Russia may have a bit of a problem there. I don't know that my prediction was as accurate as I'd hoped it would be, but hey, I was just throwing out what I thought was a possibility. We'll see what ends up happening there, but the grander point, the larger point is Russia is losing on two different fronts, and they can't seem to stop the Ukrainians. So, definitely wanted to talk about that a second, and I wanted to share a report that the Institute for the Study of War released, because it describes very well what is happening on the ground right now. Again, reading from that report, I've got a link to it in the substack notes. I want to read just a couple of paragraphs. The Ukrainian forces have done what successful militaries do. They have adapted and are now advancing. Ukraine recognized the reality of Russian defenses much faster than US than Western policymakers, who were expecting a rapid Ukrainian breakthrough. Side note. I was one of those people I expected a rapid Ukrainian breakthrough. So I was wrong. But again, Ukraine recognized the reality of Russian defenses much faster than Western policymakers who were expecting a rapid Ukrainian breakthrough. The Institute for the Study of War previously wrote in July that Ukrainian forces had adapted their tactics after they encountered initial setbacks and were increasingly successful in using small infantry assaults backed by precision fires to make inroads against Russian defenses. Ukraine's ingenuity is yielding results. Ukraine maintains the battlefield initiative and its forces are advancing in the Zaporizhian Oblast and near Bakhmut. Ukraine continues to liberate its territory and people and is slowly but steadily breaking through an incredibly formidable russian prepared defense and the russian forces are unable to stop the advance which is now moving in two directions so basically summarizing much better than i did what is happening and then they also mentioned we've talked about how ukraine has really put the russian fleet in the hurt locker here is how they say that a little bit more formally the Institute for the Study of War writes. Additionally, Ukrainian asymmetrical tactics in the Black Sea are preventing Russia's Black Sea Fleet from operating freely, forcing Russia to reposition naval assets, and increasingly challenging Russian forces in Crimea, all operational developments of strategic significance. So... I've put, by the way, that small little report, it's a little bit longer than what i read, in the source notes, so if you want to take a moment to look at that when you hear this, now's a good time to do that. It's in the substack notes. Not mentioned in that report, which I did put in the newsletter, and this made enough news that you might have heard it, but Ukraine pulled off just a significant missile strike in Crimea in the Crimean Peninsula, which is, of course, the Russian-occupied part of Ukraine, that smart, small peninsula that long-term Ukraine wants to take back. You can see video of it, and I've got it in the newsletter that I put out last week after the podcast, the breaking news one that I put out. Essentially, Ukraine's intelligence for uh, intelligence services found out when a lot of Russian officers were meeting in what they thought was a safe place. And historically, Russian air defenses down there have mostly kept these areas safe. And so Ukraine literally watches this meeting. These officers arrive. They know what part of the building the officers went in. And then they called in a perfectly timed multi-missile strike. Because again, Russia's air defenses have been worn down by Ukrainian precision strikes. And so they get hit with three missiles, all arriving almost at the same time. All of them hitting a single part of the building. You can tell Ukraine literally knew where to hit. And so they hit the small part of the building where these Russian officers were, were meeting. And then depending on which source you want to believe, anywhere from 10 to 20, there were probably 30 to 50 casualties, but 10 to 20 very high-ranking officers of the Russian military are severely wounded or killed. Russia doesn't want to confirm any of this. There are photos throughout social media showing who some of these are, including the commander of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So we pr- Ukraine probably got the high-ranking admiral that was in charge of Russia's Black Sea fleet. And you can see his photo. You can find all this on social media. None of this is secret information. Russia, again, is trying to downplay these attacks. And they, they do mention people were wounded, but they don't want to admit that people died. But if you watch the YouTube video that is... In that newsletter, you can see these are horrific explosions, and I wouldn't have you know wanted to have been in any part of that building when these strikes happened. But you can see the damage, and you can see that they the angle of the missiles. They knew exactly where they needed to hit in the meeting, the conference room, and they without question took that out. So unless someone got up for an emergency bathroom break, that was perfectly timed. I don't think anyone who was in that meeting left it on their feet. While we are talking about this offensive, let me add one more thing that just complicates things for Russia. And that is, it's now been publicly announced that the first U.S.-made Abrams tanks have arrived in Ukraine. And so these U.S. tanks, which are very, very good, among the best in the world, they are going to complicate things for Russia immensely. Now, it's not been reported how many have been delivered yet, and the U.S. has promised that they will be coming in small amounts at a time, but the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, has said, he has confirmed this week that the first M1 Abrams tanks are already in Ukraine, and he said that the tanks will, quote, reinforce our actions against the occupiers and it will be a significant reinforcement. Now, that's what he said on Monday night in his Notley uh, Notley address. President Biden has said that we would send 31 of these tanks. So, I mean, that's a pretty serious force, no matter how you spin it. I'm not sure if they'll break them up into, you know, four in this battalion, four in that battalion. I don't know if it'll be part of a larger unit. I also don't know, and it's not real clear how much, if at all, the Ukrainians have trained on these tanks. The Ukrainians have shown that they are exceptionally good at learning new equipment, so I don't think it's going to take days and days of training for someone who already is a tanker in the Ukrainian army to learn how to use the U.S. version. There's, there's probably stuff we don't know. I'm not sure if we've sent simulators over there. I'm not sure if we've sent Ukrainian troops to America, but I dare say that Ukraine will have these tanks in the fight very quickly. The Kremlin spokesman for Russia, Dmitry Peskov, said that the M1 tanks would, quote, in no way, end quote, affect the outcome of the war, and he said there was no panacea and one kind of weapon that can change the balance of forces on the battlefield, but he did acknowledge that the Abrams tanks are serious weapons, but then he said that, that they would burn, as other weapons have. And so we'll see what kind of impact that has. But I think if you're a Russian general, just knowing that there's 31 exceptional U.S.-made tanks heading into the theater, when you are increasingly fielding older T-72, T-62 tanks, we're talking tanks 40, 50 years old, the M1s will absolutely slice through those. No problems at all. Better optics, better range, better cannon, better everything, better crew survivability. The M1s are very difficult to destroy. Now, you can destroy them with artillery fire, and you can get them with um, some anti-tank missiles, but there are famous stories during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, where in one famous instance, the U.S. military had a damaged M1A1 that had been damaged in enemy action. And they couldn't tow it, and the American forces were advancing so fast that they decided to destroy it in place. And so they literally used another M1 tank to fire on this M1 tank. And I believe they fired once or twice, and the M1, the damaged M1's internal Uh, fire extinguishing system put out the fire and by that point they got a call from headquarters hey don't destroy it so they literally salvaged a tank that they shot twice at close range you can look up the details of this story but i remember it so well because basically the tankers were saying you just about cannot destroy an m1 tank with main with main cannon fire now there are missiles that can do a damage on it and like i said artillery especially if it was a overhead shot that comes in through the top yeah that's going to do something to it but that's very hard to pull off especially when Russia's starting to struggle with their artillery situation and with the older barrels that they're firing through it's going to be it's not going to be a good day for most Russians and they call M1 tanks very stealthy but I would not want to be on the Russian lines and see an M1 tank heading toward me just speaking as a basic infantryman it is going to be a very bad day for you. Just as a quick addendum to that small monologue, I did look up that incident during Desert Storm just because I wanted to get the facts straight. I wanted to make sure my memory was serving me as well as possible since I am 46 and sometimes I can confuse the facts a bit in my head. But it looks like pretty much everything I said was on. It was April 5th, 1991. An M1A1 was hit by recoilless rifle fire and set aflame the rear engine compartment was. And so a recoilless rifle is... Most of them are about 105mm. They're basically like a tank uh, cannon. And so I guess an Iraqi recoilless rifle got behind an M1 or maybe the more than likely the M1 went past one and didn't see it. So they managed to get a hit on this tank. And so the... U.S. officer that was there. the The tank's engine was on fire. They made it repeated attempts to extinguish it. The decision was made to destroy or remove any sensitive equipment, and so the uh, there was oil and 50 caliber rounds scattered in the interior. And of course, no one wants to be around a burning vehicle that has 50 caliber rounds around it. So the ammunition doors were opened. Several thermite grenades were ignited inside. And then an M1 fired a HEAT, which is a high-explosive anti-tank round, in order to ensure the destruction of the disabled tank. At that point, the Abrams tank was completely disabled, but still intact. And then they called in the Air Force, and they bombed the tank to destroy it in place. So that was the part I had wrong. So it was eventually destroyed, but man, these tanks are no joke. We're gonna do something really cool in a moment, but before we get to that, I need to just briefly mention one final thing about Russia, which is they had a major aircraft crash in Western Africa this week. It was a Russian transport plane. They're called an Illusion, I'm sorry, Illusion IL-76. These are just a very large transport aircraft. They got four big jet engines can hold hundreds of troops now Russia isn't confirming how many died in this crash it was probably a. a I don't want to speculate too much but some folks believe there were a lot of Russian troops on it regardless you can see in the video the The bigger point is this this cargo plane which is one of their better ones it costs 51 million dollars by the way But, if you watch the video of the crash, the weather is perfect. It's daylight. It's not even night. It's daylight, no storms, no wind, no dust flying around. Perfect landing conditions in daylight. And you can watch the video of this plane. And it's not even close. It lands almost halfway down the runway. So, what the plane should have done is... Immediately accelerated and tried to take off, they should have realized the runway's too short once you've landed that far into it, but they don't. And so they roll off the end of it, down through a fence, down an embankment, and the plane explodes. Now, some folks on social media are saying there's almost 200 troops in there, plus lots of cargo. Russia's been sending a lot of Military aid to places like Mali. That's where this happened in West Africa. But I think the bigger point is you can just continue to. It's just another data point of the deterioration of the quality of Russian forces. I don't know how two pilots could make an error quite that bad. I mean, like I said, this wasn't a hard. This wasn't landing on a short runway. This wasn't trying to land in a storm or high winds or at night. This was a daylight landing, and they totally botched it and paid the ultimate price. You can see a video of that. I'll put a link in the uh, substack notes, but I'll just say it was at least interesting to see that, to me, like I said, it's it's almost like another data point that the Russian military is losing its edge, and it's definitely... You know, if you're a country that could be influenced like in the Middle East or in Africa, and maybe in the past you had some high, you know, view of Russian capabilities and their weapons, the Ukrainian war has really, really knocked that down a lot. But then you see just even basic things such as this, and it's just not a really pretty image for Russia at this point. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to and would like to help support the show, you can do so by signing up as a monthly paying subscriber. For $5 per month, you can help us sustain, grow, and improve the show. Again, you can help support the show for only $5 per month. Come and go as you wish. You can find all the details on my Substack page. That's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Com. Again, stanrmitchell.substack.com, or just find it in the episode notes. Thanks so much, guys. So I mentioned earlier we were going to do something really cool. And so instead of talking about China or some of the same things happening there as the U.S. aligns with other countries around China, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, which has made a fair amount of news with you know its terrible human rights history. I thought instead of all of that, let's talk about a country we haven't talked about a whole lot. That country is Turkey. And a lot relies or a lot is riding on Turkey at this time. And I was reading a Washington Post editorial, which was, you know, basically the standard argument in which they're urging that with the situation between Turkey balancing its Interest in Russia and its interest in NATO and the West, and how Turkey is holding off the membership of Sweden in NATO, that Turkey should align itself with the West. So it's kind of a typical editorial that you would see. And I wanted to share one paragraph from that editorial, but what's amazing is the comments. The comments from very well read people making strong arguments for and against keeping Turkey in the Western arms, so to speak, of NATO and under U.S. You know, we're in a weird situation with Turkey, so before I get into that, let me just read the paragraph from the Washington Post editorial, and then I think you're really going to enjoy these comments. So here's the paragraph. Again, this is from the Washington Post editorial. The standoff is a bouquet for Russian President Vladimir Putin, with whom Mr. Erdogan has proclaimed he has a, quote, special relationship. The Turkish leader would be wise to reassess where his interests lie with his NATO allies, whose combined economic output is roughly 10 times greater than Russia's, or with the warmongers in the Kremlin, who are struggling to keep their economy in gear against the weight of Western sanctions. So again, the Washington Post editorial is just kind of making this point that Turkey needs to decide whose side it's on, and Turkey, if it has much sense, would decide to be on the side of NATO and the West. Again, Turkey always kind of balances both sides. We've talked about that some in previous podcasts, but there's nothing I love more than a good foreign policy debate, especially when the answer isn't clear. And the comments in this Washington Post underneath the editorial were just so good that I wanted to read some because you kind of get a both-sides deal. So here's the first one. Turkey fought with us in Korea. They dominate the eastern Mediterranean. They provided Ukraine with uh, Bayraktar drones. I probably pronounced it wrong, but Bayraktar, Bayraktar drones. They had the largest army after Russia in Europe. They were instrumental in enabling Ukraine to export its grain. Yes, they are very troubles. they are a very troublesome ally, but the rest of the West has not always been pro turkey either. Patience and good diplomacy will pay off with the Turks, as half of their population is modern and compatible, or compatible with Western values, not just the half that votes for Erdogan. The U.S. as well has a very difficult half of our population, but we don't give up on it either. So there you go. There's the pro side. And then check out this reply. And I just love these replies going back and forth because both sides make really good points. So this person says, Do we even need Turkey and NATO? Do we need a friend that when asked for help, always asks, what's in it for me? How much better off and stronger would NATO be if all the members acted together? I personally believe NATO would be stronger with Sweden as a member and Turkey, not one. Close the door to Turkish exports to NATO countries. We can threaten to be a bad neighbor also. And so, obviously, pretty good reply. Then someone replies, A. There is currently no legal mechanism in NATO to kick a member out. B. Turkey has the biggest military in Europe. C., Turkey controls the entrance to the Black Sea and the Sea of Marmara via the Bosphorus and Dardanelles Strait. This is one of the most geostrategically important naval choke points in the world. Obviously, that's a pretty good point, too. And these comments go on. They're all just so good, so I want to share just a couple more. One person mentions that that Turkey had fought with the U.S., in Korea. And so someone replies, would Turkey have fought in Korea if Erdogan were in charge back then? Why even raise that point since that was 70 years ago? Second point, Turkey has been given every chance to strengthen NATO, and Erdogan has been playing power games. He's been given things he asked for, but he has a very weak hand trying to control Sweden's laws and historic personal rights. The article says that Erdogan is trying to squeeze too much out of NATO and is actually harming the alliance with his own-again, off-again tactics. He should grow up and follow through with his commitments. Otherwise, he is showing himself and Turkey to be an unreliable partner. And then there was this one. While Erdogan is an objectionable, subhuman, borderline, borderline fascist authoritarian, in my opinion, we cannot wash away all the good and bad Turkey did before. They have a smart, natural, western-oriented population outside the rural areas, and we should cultivate them. Maybe NATO has to play the long game. By unofficially bringing in Sweden without the paperwork and make it impossible for this goon and that other major corrupt fool, what's-his-face-in-Hungary... Give them lip service to their rhetoric and demands, but make it obvious that when it comes to decision-making, they are a second rung. They'll soon find out that they are not in the inner circle. And if they decide to go with Putin, they will face the wrath of NATO and the West in economic, social, and political realms. So another just great comment. And the thing I love about these comments is instead of reading like State Department legalese where things are barely said, people just flat out say, one way or the other. Everything's black and white, so these are people arguing both sides. It's really fun to read this stuff. We will end with one final one. This person says, it was a different Turkey that fought in Korea, not Erdogan's Turkey. Since then, they have not only become stronger, but also more authoritarian and aggressive and less predictable. The population supports Erdogan. He won again, and of course there was a recent election, but he won again, and the trends are clear. Patience might only result in Turkey attacking Greece or Armenia, which is when we will wake up, but it will be too late. So there you go. Nice little exciting debate on both sides of that issue. I would love to hear what you guys think. How should the U.S. play this? Should we start to distance ourselves? The Congress is currently... Threatening to not send some weapons packages to Turkey in order to try to strong arm them to support Sweden and support NATO more. So Erdogan is definitely starting to run out of, or the U.S. is running out of patience with Erdogan. But what do you guys think? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Again, I love a good debate like that. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope it got your mind thinking. Does the should the U.S. play the short game? Should they play the long game? Be patient with Erdogan. Again, Erdogan is such an interesting individual. Not a big fan of his. But he has, at times, helped Ukraine a lot. And he has stood up to Russia sometimes. But he also really is a pain in the the rear end to the West. He has stood up against the U.S. and NATO several times. So he's, he's really in the middle. As one commenter called him, the... Senator Joe Manchin of Europe because he really seems to like to have both sides begging him and mad at him at the same time. But he definitely plays both sides off the population to stay popular and to show this strongman image that he loves to have. But again, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. What do you think the U.S. should do? If you've got an opinion, send it in. Alright, so enough of all that. Let's get to the best part of the show. This is the motivation and wisdom section. I share these each week because I think we can all benefit from a weekly pep talk. I mean, seriously. All most of us here, all day, every day, is negative stuff. Let's flip that switch. Here is the first one. Expectations can destroy you. Again, expectations can destroy you. And I'm telling you, this one is absolutely true. I know speaking for myself, you know, you think after putting 12 books out, you would learn your lesson. But every book I launch, I always set my expectations too high. And when it doesn't quite sell or take off as fast as I want, I'm just like, oh, Stan, like, man, like you put so much work into that. or Then you start building up all of this stuff in your mind and you start saying, oh, people don't like your books. You're not a good writer on and on. It is very bad. And then you talk to some other author and you're like, wait, my books aren't even selling that bad. They're doing pretty good, actually. Why am I not grateful? Well, I'm not because I set my expectations too high. So again, that saying is expectations can mentally destroy you. So let's not set our expectations too high. Next one. Stay patient and trust the journey. Again, stay patient and trust the journey. Next one, if your, own, if your failure is not a lesson, it's indeed a failure. Again, if your failure is not a lesson, it is indeed a failure. Let's learn from those lessons, and let's not beat ourselves up too bad, right? Next one, as long as you are alive, no obstacle is permanent. Never give up. Again, as long as you are alive, no obstacle is permanent. Never give up. Next one's a great one. Some people dream of success while others wake up and work hard at it. That is such a good one, is it not? Some people dream of success while others wake up and work hard at it. This one is so deep, and I am very guilty of this, although I've been getting better at it in the last year or so, really focusing on family. But if you're one of those go-getters who almost pushes too hard, this one will probably hit you. Don't be in a hurry to achieve your dreams. Take a day to play with your kids and relax. Your dreams will still be there tomorrow. Man, that's good, is it not? Don't be in a hurry to achieve your dreams. Take a day to play with your kids and relax. Your dreams will be there tomorrow. Next one. Hard times teach us valuable lessons. Again, hard times teach us valuable lessons. Lessons. Next one. If you want people to trust you, admit when you are wrong. Again, if you want people to trust you, admit when you are wrong. Next one. Trust the timing of your life. Again, trust the timing of your life. You know, I once heard a uh, pastor talk about that gifts that are given too soon aren't actually gifts. Like, if you... Get a house before you're ready for it. It's not a. It's not a blessing. It's a financial burden. You can't afford the refrigerator and all the stuff you need for the house and the furniture and the upkeep. And you got to buy a lawnmower if you move from an apartment. And so, a house before you're ready for it is not actually a blessing. It's almost a hardship. Same thing. He made the point that you know if a a baby is born too soon, you know there's all kinds of medical issues that arise with that. So. Trust the timing of your life. It's really good. Next one. There is no success without challenges, struggles, and setbacks, so don't quit when things get hard. Again, there is no success without challenges, struggles, and setbacks, so don't quit when things get hard. Next one. God is never late. We're just impatient. (laughs) That's a good one. God is never late. We're just impatient. Next one. Every single thing that has happened in your life is preparing you for a moment that is yet to come. It's another good one. Every single thing that has happened in your life is preparing you for a moment that is yet to come. Next one is nice and simple. If you dream it, you can do it. Again, if you dream it, you can do it. Okay, let's do three quick ones from the Bible. I'm not even going to mention the book or the verse because I realize most people aren't looking these up. If you want to look them up, you can just look up the words I'm saying and it'll tell you what chapter and book of the Bible it's from, but I think that adds too much of a delay having re-listened to some of my previous podcasts, so here's the first one. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future... And a hope. Again, that one was, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Here's the next one. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's a pretty famous verse right there. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. One final one. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a good one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. So many men and women have sacrificed, fought, and died to keep this country together the past 240 years. Please work daily to unite our country again. The vast majority of Americans are decent, loving, great people. Also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. For those who are listening for the first time, let me say a bit more about myself and the podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior infantry Marine who dropped the sword and picked up the pen. After joining the Marine Corps at the age of 17 to serve four years in the infantry, I exited military service, earned a degree, and spent 10-plus years in the news business, initially as a reporter, but then going on to start a weekly newspaper in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013. But once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 12 books, and while it's true I'm still writing, I'm now here as well, a once a week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think that much can be gained from discussing these issues and creating a community where we intelligently discuss the troubles confronting us and where we work to come closer together and respect each other's views with more patience and kindness. A house divided cannot stand, and I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. I will not remain silent while politicians, seeking their own personal gain, try to throw gas on a dangerous fire, doing their best to tear apart this country so that they can advance to a higher office. We face great challenges as a country, but America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. So let's get a little better informed, and let's work to get a little more united as a people. Thank you for being patient and allowing me to share that monologue. I think it's important people hear what I'm about, and I think it's also important my regular listeners hear this message enough that it sinks in, that it affects what they believe, that it affects how they act. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as kindness, patience, patience, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Thanks again for your patience and for listening. I know it's not the sort of fast-paced, really hip, Twitter-friendly, TikTok-cool message that fits most podcasts that go viral, but maybe we've got a few too many podcasts that are like that. Maybe we need to go back to something deeper, to something firmer and more solid to something we can build a foundation from. And that's what I'm offering. Now, we're almost to the end of the show, and I'd be a fool not to mention my books. I write fast-paced books, and when I say fast-paced, I mean like really fast-paced books. And if you read the reviews, people say they are gripping, compelling, and full of twists and turns. I've written a dozen books to date, and I've been fortunate to have sold more than 70,000 copies. And guys, these are independently published. There isn't some big company pushing these. These are straight up word of mouth sales. So if you're one of those who've bought a a book or more than one book, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. If you're one of those folks who've just shared links or told others about me, it's a great way to support the show. All of my books can be found on Amazon and they are primarily about military thrillers. I've got a series about a Marine Corps sniper. I've got some police detective ones, but you can find all of them on Amazon just by searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell. Make sure you include the R. You will find them no problem. You will see they all have averages of more than four uh, four plus stars and thousands of reviews on them. So they're great gifts. They're also great for yourself if you're interested in them. So thanks so much guys for sticking it out with me. I hope you got something from the show, and I look forward to seeing you guys here, same time, same place, next Thursday.